0: Hello, everybody. So we do uh, this totally geeky thing. Um, everybody has to turn on the cameras. We all have to say hi to each other in cyberspace. <laughs> Fantastic. Nice to be back with you all. So we're, we're doing a couple of these um, third uh morning sessions for a european community um so i was gone last week and i think what did you guys do last week you, you played the bardo becoming talk is that right yep, that's yeah that's right um and so if you're new to this event what we do is we just get together we started this over a year ago when covid kind of came crashing down um as a way to just hang out and chat and it's just it's been kind of clicking along ever since then so if you're new welcome if you're Um, a a return visit. Welcome as well. Um, A a wonderful list of written questions were submitted. In fact, they're so good and there's so many of them (laughs) that I'm going to use them as my platform riff today. Um, I was going to say something about uh, the relationship of brain to mind, but I'll save that for next week. I'm doing a little bit of, of research around uh, how brain is just basically, I think Huxley said it, just this kind of reducing valve. <clears throat> so I want to say a little bit more about that, but because there are so many really great questions, uh, I want to turn to those to start with. But as usual, <clears throat> there are a few announcements uh, like things upcoming, <clears throat> excuse me. We did a really, I, I think a terrific interview yesterday with Ian Baker. Um, in fact, it was so rich, I'm going to invite him back to actually give a presentation um, on hidden lands. He, he's an amazing scholar, PhD anthropologist, uh, author of seven books. And in particular, this remarkable book called The Heart of the World, which is about hidden lands, Baal. It's a really breathtaking topic, super, super interesting. And so we talked for almost two hours and we could have talked for like six. Really rich, at least I thought. Um, Ian's amazing, he's a tremendous resource. And this material is just so out there, it's really profound. So I'm gonna we'll process that, process that, try to get that out as soon as tomorrow. So check that out when it comes out. It was a really good one. Um, we've got one more week with the book study group with my dear friend, Joe. Uh, he's gonna be finishing the, the mindfulness uh, Winnie the Pooh book, which has been such a delightful romp. Then we're gonna take a week off. <clears throat> and then at, at the request of a number of people in terms of what book to do next, we're gonna dive in I think it's the 29th of June on Tuesday, into a a complete reading and commentary on my first book in the series of dreams, Dream Yoga, Illuminating Your Life Through Lucid Dreaming and the Tibetan Yogas of Sleep. Excuse me, so that's coming up. And I'm really excited about that. Let me just clear my throat here a little bit, sorry. Okay, there we go. Um, and the other thing that's kind of fun for me is my first live event. So, this is a chance where I get to put my lemonade stand up. My first in person event is happening at Shambhala Mountain Center. In fact, on the topic that uh, uh, the talk was on last week, uh, Karmic Bardo Becoming. So, if you listen to that talk, it's like we're going to add water to that um, presentation which I think was, if I remember when I did that, that was a little bit concentrated. So this is the, an entire week is part of the series I'm doing up there designed to prepare people for death, this really kind of deep, deep dive into the bardos. And so this one's on the karmic bardo becoming the third bardo, which is the one where we spend most of our time um, allegedly after we die. And so I'm really excited about this. SMC is a terrific place to do it. It's a really powerful location. And there's gonna be a streaming, it's gonna be a hybrid program. I haven't done one of these puppies before. So it's gonna be a hybrid program, both streaming and live. <clears throat> and Andy, if you can possibly, I forgot to ask you, my friend, if you can possibly throw up a link to that, that would be awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's, there's other stuff, but that's enough for today in terms of that. And I, I wanna start in right away with these questions because there are a lot of them. And again, these are really great. So thank you so much. If you have a live question, I'm not gonna do these exclusively, we'll pause. And if you have a question or if the person who asked the question wants to call on and follow up, um, just raise your hand and we'll call on you. Um, but I did want to jump into some of these cause they were so cool. So, um, here's the way they kind of popped in. The first one's from Erica at a time when so many of us are frightened, how can we inspire and support one another with the gesture of giving fearlessness? So this is the mudra of fearlessness, um, I, I, I just assume that's what you're talking about, the gesture, the mudra, of fearlessness. <clears throat> Will you kindly talk about the relationship between the and Tara and the attainment of giving fearlessness? How does this mudra signify this concept? Okay, well, there's a lot here. Um, you know, this issue of fear is a big one, right? I mean, it's, it's the is that is the primary emotion of samsara really because fear is the affective expression of ignorance you could say that ignorance is an emotion right but yeah, you know that's not so easy to identify so fear really sublimates the whole samsaric trajectory so it's a colossally important topic to explore and it's also if we approach it properly this time of fear and anxiety let's let's put these kissing cousins together in this age of fear and anxiety, if we approach this properly with, with a kind of alchemical or tantric approach, we can transform obstacle into opportunity. We can use this age of anxiety and fear uh, really as a way to grow. Um, because until we establish a relationship to fear and anxiety, we are going to be dictated by its machinations. And so this is a kind of a big deal. And so, Erica, really the most important thing to do is to delve deeply and understand the nature of fear, understand the nature of fear and anxiety. Um, and this is such a big deal. I riff on this a lot. Again, just to show you, you know, we, we posted a course on my main site working with fear and anxiety in an uncertain world. So I have an entire program on this. Um, I also write, there's a whole chapter on it just to give you some references. I have a whole chapter on it in my book, Dreams of Light, uh, chapter on integral fear, how to relate to it. Because again, this is so critically important. But for me, the most important thing here is um, to actually embrace fear and anxiety um, and understand it as approximations of open space seen from the reference point of ego. Um, and that in itself then becomes really revelatory because, you know, in the minds of, like you, you mentioned, Tara and Amoga City. in in the minds of the Buddhism and Bodhisattvas, there's no fear whatsoever because they understand the nature of fear, they understand the nature of reality. And so therefore we can use fear and anxiety as our teachers. Um, Every time we feel fear and anxiety, which is like all the time, you know, we can use that contraction. And if you pay attention to when you feel either fear and anxiety, you will notice that there's absolutely positively a contraction, a visceral contraction that takes place, born of self-defense. And so therefore, the, the, this, this fear thing, it, it's actually the, the center of the samsaric mandala, if those words mean anything to you. Um, fear is really what we spend our entire lives avoiding. It's, you it's, could say life is a protracted, and quite sophisticated avoidance strategy to avoid the harsh noble truths of the nature of fear and anxiety. And so therefore it's really incumbent upon us as practitioners to establish a relationship to transform these into um, profound opportunities for growth. So this is a big deal. If we can actually do that, these most kind of deleterious um, emotions, can actually become tremendous catalysts for growth. So I, I strongly recommend diving into this, follow your fear. I mean, Pema Chodron has made a career out of this, right? Follow your fear. If you really want to grow in this life, follow your fear because fear is a minion of ignorance. It's the closest thing we can get to usurping, understanding, overthrowing this kingdom of ignorance. And so to whatever extent you're attracted to working with this, I really recommend it. And so what I, what I What I do with this now in my own experience is that whenever I feel anxiety and fear, instead of capitulating to it, I notice that contraction, I notice that reifying tendency. I mean, that's what fear is uh, along with anger. Um, These are among those most solidifying, reifying emotions that we have. I mean, if you really think about fear, do you ever feel more real, more solid than when you're afraid? And so therefore fear has a, a, a place. That's the other thing that's super important. Um, it has a place on the evolutionary spectrum. And this is why uh, having an integral understanding of fear is so important because if we did not have fear, uh, we would not be here talking about the nature of fear. We would have not never evolved. So we actually need fear to evolve biologically, literally. And so what we want to do is transcend, but include fear keep fear and anxiety in the domain, the biological domain to which it really was, <laughs> to which it evolved actually allowing evolution, but evolution flips into devolution if fear then usurps its territory and um, starts to try to overstep its bounds. And so, um, gosh, there's so much to say here. You know, I mean, fear protects form and ego is the archetype of form, exclusive identification with form. So on the path, We're trying to go from ego to egolessness, from form to formlessness. That's akin to death for the ego. And so the very fear that brought us to this evolutionary point then screeches to um, evolution, to a grinding halt, when you go really deep into spiritual pursuits and all this stuff comes up. Um, And so if you don't understand it, fear will succeed yet again in what? Protecting form, protecting ego. And so therefore uh, establishing a relationship to fear is colossally important because guess what? It's waiting for you. It's really the very center of your relative sense of self, not your absolute sense. It's the relative core of your being. And so as you do deep spiritual practice, you're heading into this gauntlet, it's waiting for you. And some of you may have had this experience. When you go really far along the path, um, you'll start to notice this, anxiety and sometimes fear, fear of of failure, fear of sometimes insanity, fear that you're going to die if you do this. Well, you're not gonna die, it's just your ego that's dying. It's just your ego that's kicking and screaming. So um, Erica, there's so much to say here. Um, I'll probably leave it at that and refer you to some of these other sources, but I really, I'm riffing on it a little bit more here because this is a, a super important topic. Um, on the spiritual path. Sooner or later, you have to establish a relationship to this energetic. Otherwise, you will forever spend your life relating from it instead of to it. <clears throat> and your entire life, in fact, is an avoidance strategy to avoid the truth that uh, fear is protecting in a certain sense. So how does this relate to Amboga city and Tara? Oh my goodness. Well, these are also somewhat large topics. Amogha city is one of the five Buddhas of the five Buddha family Pantheon, he's the Buddha of the Karma family. Literally his name means something like he whose accomplishments are not in vain. (laughs) I'd love to have that name, right? He whose accomplishments are not in vain. That's a cool name. So um, he's one of the primordial Buddhas of the Karma family, the the energy, the family of, of all accomplishing action. And as you correctly put it, one of his mudras is this this fearlessness uh, mudra gesture, as it is in fact with the Moga city. Um, he represents uh, so much. It's like I'm not sure. You know, these are there's just so much to talk about with both of them. Um, I think Tara probably is the one to spend a little bit more time with. You know, she's she's the depending on where you go for references here, she's the female um, Buddha, female Bodhisattva, uh, who comes in 21 different forms. And these forms, the one you're referring to is probably green Tara, which is one of the most popular forms of Tara. The next um, probably most popular one being white Tara. Uh, But the green Tara refers to the literal protection from physical danger. And she also holds this particular mudra, um, the Abhya mudra, which is the mudra of protection. <clears throat> and, and so, oh, again, so much to say. She arose, allegedly, she has an interesting history, arose from the tear of uh, the, Bodhisattva, the Buddha and Bodhisattva of compassion, Amitabha and um, Avalokiteshvara. Um, Her mantra, if you want to email her, she's really good at responding. (laughs) Her mantra, as you know, is om tare tu tare tu If you have a connection to this sort of thing, to deity practice, to mantra, to sound, she is one of the most accessible of all the deities. And that's why she's so popular. So if you have a connection with her, um, I strongly recommend it. I mean, in conjunction, just like your question is alluding to, She's wonderful to practice <clears throat> in connection with working with fear. Because both Tara and Amogaciti will eventually lead you to ultimate protection, ultimate fearlessness, which is understanding emptiness, understanding the empty nature of reality. Because if you understand that, as it says in the, in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, emptiness cannot harm emptiness. And so this is the ultimate protection, the ultimate fearlessness is actually discovering the nature of reality. So, um, Erica, if that's okay with you, I'm going to let that go for now, just because you know I think the fear and fearlessness part, the practicality, is perhaps the most important aspect of this. Really unpacking um, amoga City and Tara and their relationship is, you know, again, it's just a, a marvelous, colossal question that starts to tip uh, more fully into Tantric Vajrayana stuff. But if that's okay with you, unless you have something else specifically you want to follow up on, I'm going to let that go for now, just so I can get to some of these other really cool questions. Okay. Okay, from Zach. Hey, Andrew. What were you doing at the age of 25? (laughs) That's a good one. And where were you? Okay. Would you be doing anything differently at 25 if you could go back now? Oh, yeah, for sure. Okay, so, excuse me, at 25, I was here studying physics at CU. Because I had this experience, I had this, this kind of metanoia, this kind of breakthrough, breakdown experience that translated itself, Zach, in, in the arena of physics, um, quantum theory in particular. And so I came, I came out to see you. I finished my uh, a double degree in music performance, classical piano, in biology, I was thinking about med school, um, took a year off to think about what to do with my life, and then had this really cool experience. Um, and I think I write about it in, oh yeah, in, uh, dr- in the dream yoga book. I think I refined it in the introduction. And so this experience sent me out here to Boulder to study um, physics, because I thought physics at that point described reality. I didn't really know what I was looking for. Um, retrospectively, I was looking for reality and I thought physics described it. And it does on one level, right? It describes relative reality. And so what happened for me, Zach, at this point is it didn't take long, a couple of years of full-on study at CU in physics that I realized I'm barking up the wrong tree. And so I entered a really dark, difficult time, the hardest time in my life, actually, for three or four years in my mid to late twenties, where I was seriously lost. Um, I, had, I was practicing transcendental meditation at that time, just starting to tip my toes into the Buddhist thing because Trungpa Rinpoche was out here in Boulder as well. I was kind of hovering around that community um, in Europa and all that. But the whole scene was so crazy. It was so wild that <clears throat> it was like, whoa, you know, not quite for me. At least I, I didn't really at that point, I really wasn't ready for it. And so I. Uh, I totally bottomed out with the whole physics thing, realized this is not what I'm looking for. And then I just I was seriously lost. I really didn't know what to do. Yeah, the hardest time of my life actually. Um, and so I got some great help from some really sensitive um, therapists, really cool people, a couple of which were really strong students of Trump Rinpoche and Buddhists. And that was a lifesaver for me, the raft that lifesaver was thrown to me and and then I started, you know, um, getting into Buddhism really big time. Um, lots to say here about why that spoke to me so profoundly. but like, would I have done anything differently at 25? Yeah, I probably would have started studying this stuff more wholeheartedly as early as possible. Um, so I take it that maybe you're 25. <laughs> if you are, good for you. And if I can give you any advice, you know, um, look deeply into the nature of of uh, who you are and what you really want. And the fact that you, I'm allu- I'm just, I'm just guessing here, Zach, that, that is how old you are. The fact that you're actually here listening to this stuff is pretty cool because most people, it's a little bit different these days, I guess, than when I was this age, but you know, most people at that age really aren't that terribly interested in this sort of thing. Um, They still haven't exhausted the um, kind of the limitations of the samsaric agenda. So yeah, that was my gig. Um, I wish I would have started Buddhism a little bit earlier, but hey, I'm happy with what I've done since then. I ended up using that time in a very rich, fortuitous way. Um, you know, I kind of literally, as, as uh, Minjir Rinpoche writes about, sometimes in order to break through, you have to break down. And this is a breakdown period of my life. This is where um, my entire agenda to be a physician, to be a concert pianist, to be, you know, the, the super successful kind of Westerner. Just came crashing down and it was like you know this is just this is an utterly futile enterprise this is going nowhere and so i didn't you know i didn't really have a full replacement strategy i, I was just repealing the samsaric agenda and i didn't have a replacement for it and that's what made it really tricky for me really psychologically really slippery territory um, and so buddhism came along at just the right time to so to speak, save me with an alternative track an alternative, more viable path. And so when I started getting deeply into that, I realized, hey, this is, this is the path that's leading to reality. That this is what I'm really looking for. Physics was just a substitute gratification that eventually because it wasn't the real deal bottomed out for me. Um, and so if you're on and want to say or ask anything more about that amigo, more than welcome. But that's, that's what comes to my memory a few decades later. So, all right, I'm gonna pop around here. There's some really great ones. So Sarah from last week, did Andrew say that the unconscious is at the center of our being? Is there a geography of the self from innermost to outermost? Uh, Yes and yes. So Sarah, the unconscious, and again, I don't remember everything I said in that talk. the unconscious is the center of our relative sense of being. And it's it's not um, the, at the center of our absolute sense of being. That's super consciousness. That's the awakened mind. But the, the relative center of our being is in fact this ignorance, this unconsciousness. And so a large part of what constitutes the path is transforming the darkness of the unconscious mind into the full light of consciousness, um, and connecting it to the bardo's. You know, uh, Bob Thurman said something really brilliant when we were riffing on this stuff at a program a couple of months ago. He said something really co- compelling around this, Sarah. That, and I don't think I said this in that talk, where he says it's, it's it's dangerous to die if you still have an unconscious mind. That's an astounding statement. It's dangerous to die if you still have an unconscious mind. Why? Well, because the unconscious mind is released when you die. And that's what makes the bardos perilous. That's what makes them so dicey is because just like in a dream, you know, if you don't wake up and become lucid either in a dream or that's what death is, the dream at the end of time, that's what death is called. If you don't become lucid in any dream state, your habits, your karma, your unconscious mind takes over. And that's where the danger comes in. Um, And so until you transform your unconscious mind into the light of consciousness or on a relative level, make that unconsciousness as full as you possibly can of good habits, good karma, then we, we are basically buffeted around by those unconscious processes. And this is really the beautiful interface between psychology and spirituality. And just to show you the extent of this and how important this is, you know, the neuroscience community says that 95, at least 95% of, of what we do in our so-called conscious lives is dictated by unconscious processes. That's a staggering statement. And so, the, you know, when Christ said, forgive them father for they know not what they do. We don't know why we do what we do. So yes, the unconscious is uh, at the center of the relative sense of self. Below that you have what's called the collective unconscious. That's, that's Jung's um, incredible contribution, um, the archetypal nature of the collective unconscious, fantastically powerful teachings. And then you say, is there a geography or topography of the self from innermost to outermost? Absolutely, sure there is. And that's why understanding this is so incredibly important because in fact, in relation to the bar to becoming, Sarah, when we die, that's the journey we actually take um, or you, you could say it takes us, that we descend in a certain way from so-called conscious experience into the unconscious. That's why for most of us who are not prepared, the death journey is non-lucid because it's unconscious. It's driven by these unconscious processes. And therefore the bar to becoming once again becomes really dangerous. However, the parallel is direct, directly proportional to the promise. And so if you attain lucidity by understanding who you are, then there are just as many opportunities because of the fluidity of the environment for awakening and so the this kind of geography as you're putting it of the cell from innermost to outermost absolutely i mean again for references i riff on this a ton because it's so important in both my dream books um the one that we're going to start at the end of the month dream yoga i have i think one or two chapters on this um topic And then in the book I just published last year, Dreams of Light, I also have one or two chapters because this is so bloody important. So I hope that helps, that's what comes to mind. Um, Okay, so here's some other great questions from Nicole. Hi, Andrew, hope everything is well. Uh, Yes, it is, thanks for asking. I'm nearing the end of luminous emptiness. So that's Francesca Fremantle's really beautiful book, um, subtitle, Understanding the Tibetan Book of the Dead one of the best books out there. And Francesca is just a sweetheart. She's a friend, a really marvelous human being. So if you haven't read this book and you're interested in the bardos, this is the book to read. I'm wondering what our purpose should be when approaching the bardo of existence. I recall His Holiness the Dalai Lama mentioning that he would like to be reborn in a region of the world with the most suffering. Francesca suggested we should try to view the process as a play of illusion as it will help to avoid grasping at the chance of rebirth while in the bar of existence. Why is it considered bad to grasp at the chance of rebirth? Can you explain the difference between the grasping consciousness and lucid consciousness while in the (laughs) Bardo? I chuckle because these questions are just so great, right? I mean, we could do a whole hour on on just one of these questions. So I chuckle because they stop my mind. It's like, how can I zip these great questions down into bullet point answers? Well, here's the thing, here Nicole. Um, the point is, the point is not to get out of existence. That's not the point in the Buddhist tradition. Unlike other traditions, and again, I'm, no judgments whatsoever. You know, many other traditions say who believe in reincarnation, you know, get out of it, get out of the wheel, stop the process of rebirth. That, in this tradition, that's not the point. The point is to stop involuntary rebirth so this ties into sarah's question that as long as there is an unconscious processes at work the the process of rebirth which by the way is happening right now so what we're talking about at the end of life it's happening right now your unconscious mind forces you involuntarily into lifetime after lifetime and so the buddhist tradition Um, says, you know, the the point is not to get out of existence, but to get out of involuntary existence. And so um, why is it considered bad to grasp at the chance of rebirth? Well, it's considered bad to grasp after anything. And so what we want to do then is um, we want to transform, again, this tremendously interesting period of the bardos is an opportunity. So the bardo becoming sometimes also called the bardo of opportunity where we have, if we're lucid to it, just like in a lucid dream, we have the opportunity to take on form, volitionally, intentionally, out of love, kindness and compassion and wisdom, not driven by ignorance and karmic propulsion. So that's really the bullet point here is, is, and again, if you're a, a student of Buddhism, I. Don't know if I got into this in in the talk that was played last week, but um, this is precisely what we're gonna be talking about for a whole week at SMC. So here's a chance to throw in an advertisement for that. This is the the 12 links of dependent origination, the, the 12 Nidanas, intellectual content of enlightenment. This is what the Buddha discovered on the night of his awakening. This describes this really beautifully where what we want to do is is instead of being involuntarily propelled out of fear, there's the fear thing again, back into form as an escape, which we therefore then become embodiments of that ignorance embodiments of that fear. That's what the relative self sense is. We are embodied ignorance, embodied fear, literally through these um, processes, practices and alchemical tantric transformations. We want to flip that into voluntary conscious rebirth moment to moment. Again, this is an iterative process. It's happening now moment to moment, life to life. We want to form our wisdom, our compassion, our kindness, our love intentionally, volitionally. And so that's not done by grasping. That's done by aspiration. Grasping is always pejorative. It's always negative. That's just the expression of ego. So we want to replace this grasping um, at the chance of rebirth with aspirations to take rebirth for the benefit of others. And so when you say here at the beginning, you know wondering what our purpose should be when approaching the bardo existence, well the purpose there should be the purpose now to form your mind to form your life now what is found now is found then for the benefit of others. And so his holiness of course, you know with his he's going to have a totally lucid bardo experience. And so he has that power. His consciousness never turns off. So when he dies, he's just going to go from gross to subtle to very subtle this ties into Sarah's question. And so, you know, he, his mind will never turn off. And so he, he quote unquote, will go through this Bardo trajectory with total lucidity, total awareness, and therefore total control. Just like in a lucid dream, he's going to have a lucid death experience. And so he has this capacity because he's so awake. And what he says, I'm sure it's not just rhetoric where he will then take rebirth, the great Bodhisattvas voluntarily take rebirth in the regions where there are the most suffering as a way to be of the greatest benefit to all beings, And we should aspire to be like him. Um, And we should do that now. You don't have to wait till you die to do that. Aspire now to go into dimensions that are challenging where you can be of benefit to others. You can go into these lower realms, these hell realms now and work with this. And so really, if you do that now, you'll do it then just like His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Um, Francesca suggested we should try to view the process as a play of illusion. Yes, as it will help to avoid grasping at the chance of rebirth. Correct. So um, Nicole, if you have something else to say on that, that's awesome. Otherwise that's what comes to mind. Okay, really great questions. Thank you. Okay, from KFE. Hi, Kathy. Why do we train in lucid dreaming and dream yoga? When I heard that dreamless sleep is a more realized state. Correct, that's true. Yes, in the Nyingma tradition of Tibetan Buddhism, sleep yoga, luminosity yoga, is the main practice. And so the reason uh, we work with lucid dreaming and dream yoga is because it is a whole lot easier. Um, Lucid sleep is hard for most people. I mean, the vast majority, lucid sleep is a really difficult practice. Because you're working with completely formless dimensions of mind, and so if you have Kathy, if you have that kind of talent, propensity to work with lucidity, Turia, um, in the Hindu language, go for it. Um, but it's it's not easy. It's, this is like it's not even graduate school. This is like getting a postdoc. The uh, lucid sleep practice is among the most advanced practices in all of Buddhism because it's so incredibly subtle. So, if you can do it, go for it. Uh, most people can't. And so, therefore, we work with liminal dreaming, lucid dreaming, dream yoga, just because it's a whole lot easier. And even then, if you know that for most people, that's not so easy either, right? So, yes, what you say is true. Uh, sleep yoga transcends but includes uh, dream yoga. So, if you can attain lucidity in the deep dreamless state, you are automatically lucid in the dream state. So if you can shoot to the top and, and enter a postdoc program, and again, I mean this seriously, some people have this kind of predisposition and talent. Yes, that's your practice. But most people it's a little bit like saying, geez, you know, why, why do we study arithmetic before we study quantum you know, or calculus three? Well, for obvious reasons. Um, so you're correct, but we do it because it's just a whole lot easier for the vast majority of people. Okay, so Kathy had a question. I just saw her hand raised up. Or is it Katie or Kathy, sorry. We can, we can take a live one and then I'll come back because there's so many other good ones, but we can take a live one and then I'll, I'll return to some of these written ones.
1: Hi. So, can you hear me? I can, yes. Good, good, good morning. Hi. So, um, my mother died yesterday.
0: Oh okay. I'm so sorry.
1: Yeah, so <laughs> I don't know what to say. You know, I, I spent most of my adult life interested in studying death and dying and Tibetan book of the dead, you know, I've gotten this whole pandemic uh, in you know, deep dive with you. And so here it here it's, is, you know, it's kind of like, okay. So I remember a few things like, you know, dedicate the merit, you know, cultivate a peaceful space you know focus on positive thoughts about her rather than you know the other side you know Uh, you know so tried to be helpful to everybody in the situation myself included but um, I just thought it was kind of auspicious that you're doing this this morning to kind of help me because my mind is blown out. I don't know what to say. I am totally blown out. Like what the hell am I supposed to do? She, she's not open. She was not an open person. She didn't want to talk about death. Death was defeat. You know, she's 94 years old. I'm totally weird, like a cult person, you know, so. (laughs) So is there more I can do than what I just stated to help her?
0: Yes. Um, I mean, the most important thing you can do, Katie, is um, just you know, maintain your open heart, maintain an open mind. Every time you think of her, um, think of her with a quality of love because there's incredible sensitivity and in, in the bandwidth of her experience right now. And she can be very highly attracted to what you actually represent, even though she may not have had a connection to it when she was alive. Mm-hmm a type of sanity to your mind stream that, that actually um can be very helpful and very attractive to her now so whenever you think of her you can append a mantra for instance yeah. that's what i did when my mom died
1: append a mantra
0: yeah every time i thought of her i, I said um Mani padme home Mani padme home Mani padme home so every you know mantra speaking of protection earlier the question Mantras are mind protectors. And so this will be a benefit to, you and to her. And so very practically, whenever you think of her, you can append that mantra. You can invite her into your mind space. I'll just share with you what I did when my mom died.
1: Thank you, thank uh, you. Yeah.
0: So whenever, whenever I did my practice, and I practiced a lot after my mom died I would invite her into my mind space. I would literally speak to her as if she could hear me. Okay. And I would say, hey mom, guess what? You've passed, but it's all good. <laughs> I'm here for you, come join me. Let's spend some time together. Literally just call out to her because she's in a very fluid environment and that fluidity can, can be perhaps a bit unsettling for her. But again, your stability will be a refuge to her and she can be drawn to that, as I mentioned earlier, and she can actually take a kind of refuge in your mind space. And so you can quite literally practice for her in a, in a really deep way, Katie, you can almost mix your mind with hers. And then if it feels right to you, this is what I did with my mom, is you can say, you know, we're gonna really miss you mom, but you're good to go. You led a really great life Everybody has to transition. You've made that transition. You're going to be totally fine. Look forward. Don't look back and just try to relax. And, and then to whatever extent, if you have, if she had some connection to a higher force, her version of God or whatever, encourage that. Um, if she didn't just say what's happening is completely natural, you're going to be okay. Just relax, release, and um. Uh, trust, trust what's happening. And you, like you mentioned, you know, in your so-called off time, you can, um, do de- meritorious actions for her. Like, you know, whatever you do that is a benefit studying, practicing, reading, you can consistently, constantly dedicate a merit for her. Um, and then Katie, you know, there, there's really a lot. Um, I have a ton of stuff in my book preparing to die where I talk very specifically about other things you can do. If you believe in it, things like, you know, sir offering a burnt offering, some of that may or may not speak to you, but really the most important thing Katie, what I do with my mom is every time I thought of her, I recited a mantra. Um, I invited her into my mind space and for the first three weeks on the day that she died. So, uh, every Wednesday for the next three weeks, those are particularly kind of potent times, according to the Tibetan tradition, where you can ramp up your efforts, you know, a little bit. Um, liturgically, if you have a connection to things like, you know, the sukavati and prayer and that sort of thing, you can do that. But mostly, it's really trusting your own intuition, trusting your own heart, staying open to her, sending her love, and just trying to create an atmosphere of receptivity, kindness, and openness. And I think if you hold that as the overarching kind of view or tenor, um, you know, she'll be fine. And so, what we could do, let's do this together as a community. This is the, the power of Sangha. So, for the next two minutes, everybody, wh- what is your mom's name? Harriet Wolf. Harriet, okay. So, um, for the next couple of minutes, as a group, we, we actually have a lot of power. Um, The world is not made of matter, the world is made of mind and hearts, and we have hearts and minds, and so we can help Harriet. And so for the next minute or two, everybody, let's do a little Tong Lin for Harriet. And if you're not familiar with this practice, it's really really simple, and it's really powerful, where what we will be doing um, for the next few minutes is we will, on our in-breath, breathe in any confusion, any fear, any anxiety that Harriet may be experiencing, we are going to breathe that in. Um, And we, in this case, we are a representative of the cosmos, so it won't affect us in any damaging way, not at all. So we're going to breathe in Harriet's um, anxiety, fear, and with every outbreath, we're going to send out, we're going to radiate out directly to her. You can even mention her name. You can just beam out, radiate directly into her quality of of stability, of kindness, of compassion and love. And this really, um, this has so much more power than you can imagine. And if we can do this together for her, this will be really a gift for her. So um, eyes open, eyes closed, doesn't matter. But for the next minute or two, with every in-breath, we're going to breathe in Harriet's any level of anxiety, fear, distortion may have, with every outbreath, we're just going to beam out sanity, love, kindness, and compassion. Okay. Katie, the one thing I might maybe just suggest for you is, um, and you know this already, but just allow yourself to feel whatever you're feeling without hesitation. Um, You know, be it like Suzuki Roshi said, you know, be a good bonfire. And so whatever you're feeling, um, be fearless in your ability to feel it fully without reservation. Um, You know, just let those fires kind of burn through you and um, the rest, you know, you're, you're a real warrior, you know what to do. But um, we'll dedicate the merit of, of, of this session to your mom and we'll keep your mom in our practice um, for the next um, week or so as a way to send our benefit, uh, our merit in her direction. And again, we have so much more power than we think. So I'm so sorry, my dear, um, best to you and Keep your heart open and uh, keep your mind.
1: Yeah, thank you, thank you. Can't thank you enough. Just what I needed, and yeah, I mean, all along, you know, not just now, but for the last year and a half, whatever. Thank you so much. Thank you, and thank you all for helping my mom. Thank you all. Thank you.
0: Thank you. It's
1: wonderful to feel connected. You know, I really do. I don't feel like yeah. you're strangers. Thank you. Yeah.
0: It's the power of the community, really. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, thanks dear. Okay, so, um, so, so from Sue, I'm very interested in the fear topic. Please put any resources uh, where we can find them. So yeah, Sue, so, um, again, I have an entire, yeah, I always feel slightly hesitant to plug my stuff all the time, but this is such a big deal. We put a course on this, um, working with fear and anxiety and in a uncertain world. That's on my main website. You'll find a, a link to an entire course on this because it's so important. And again, I have an entire chapter on it in, in my book, Dreams of Light, um, on Integral Fear. And then of course the work of Pema Children, right? I mean, you know, she's written extensively, excuse me on this topic. Sonia, will the Shambhala SMC, will the SMC event require wearing masks? Uh, I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, but Sonia, you have to ask them to make sure. I don't, I don't think so. I think as long as you're vaccinated, you're okay, but I can't speak with total authority on that. So you just just to ask them um, or reach out to me, and, and uh, uh, you know I'll see if I can find out for you. But I, I don't think so. Hey, Andrew. But, uh, Sonia has her hand up. Actually, oh, I okay. Bring her in. Yeah.
2: Sorry. Hi, Andrew. Again. Hi. Thank Hi. you so much. Always everything extraordinary, and I'm so grateful. Thank you. Uh, this is a question, I mean, first of all, I have to drop my daughter off at college at the very beginning of this. I really wanna be um, at your uh, event live at Shambhala. Is this the one that you would otherwise have done online with Bob, uh, with Tenzin live? Yes,
0: Yes, but so yes, uh, that's a good point. But, but now, you know, because if you did the one at Menla, you know, I was on for a certain amount of time, um, because i have an entire week seven days you know there's like 35 38 hours of material so so yes it's similar to what i would have done live in menla we ended up doing it um you know with bob over two weekends um so there obviously if you did take that there's obviously some repetition but i literally have twice as much time so there's a lot more practice you know we actually do some Little dark type things. It's just a whole different level of um, presentation than what I did with Bob.
2: Similar, just so, a lot more. That's great because I, I I can agree that there's far more material than there is a weekend to do it in. Sure. But um, if you do it by Zoom, uh, will that preclude some of the exercises?
0: The only thing that's going to be left out. I thought about that. Um, the only thing that would be hard to cover would be you know we, we do a little a dark meditation and so that's tricky to do right um, I, I can probably guide people through that in terms of how they could do that at home but we're gonna have a specially prepared room like we had for the first week where where that's probably the only thing that and obviously the the, the sense of community the collegiality um, I don't I've only done, I mean, I've done brief, like short sessions, hybrid programs, uh, in person and streaming. I haven't done a whole week like this, so it's going to be a little bit of a an experiment uh, around the strengths and limitations around that. But I think you can use your imagination in terms of what would work and what doesn't work. Did you just disappear on me?
2: <laughs> I did, but I'm back, thank goodness. Oh, there you are. Okay, but I'm my Wi-Fi is always spotty. I move around the house, but. Um... Okay, so that would be great, and uh, God willing, going forward, you know, one of the silver lines, of course, of COVID has been that so much more dharma has been available for those who literally can't travel all the time. So hopefully, we can do that hybrid combo. You know, obviously, better face to face. And I have another question. I'm reading a book uh, called "Daylog Journey to the Realms Beyond Death." I know it. And I'm sure you've answered this question for many people many times, and probably even for me nevertheless, I ask it again, they go on and on about how if you say this number of mantras, sort of like kind kind of like a nongro, for someone, you can sort of haul somebody out of the hell realm. So I really puzzled about how it can be that we could actually activate somebody's or dissipate somebody's karma, karmic seeds, so that we could do something for them.
0: Yeah, this is a, you know, it depends on who you talk to here this is one of these really tricky questions, and you'll get different answers depending on who you talk to. You know, fundamentally our, our mind streams, chitta uh, santana you know, whatever you want to call it, buddha-nature, matikta depending on their tradition, we, we do have these individ, individ, individuated mind streams. My mind stream is not the same as yours. The nature of my mind is the same as the nature of your mind, but my mind stream is not the same as yours. and so. Depending on who you ask, um, you can't really purify another person's karma. And again, different people will tell you otherwise. But what you can do is, is you can affect a, another person's mind stream. Um, and this is where in fact, somebody came to what we're doing for Harriet. We can, through the power of, of this kind of pretemporal, temporal pre-spatial communication, we can infuse some, some levels of energy and bring, bring benefit with dedication of merit and that sort of thing. But, but to the very best of my understanding, and, and again, Trumper Miche, so many other masters say, you know, even the Buddha, work out your own salvation with diligence. I mean, don't you think that if, there, if this capacity was there, that with the omniscience of the minds of the Buddhas, that we would all be liberated because of that? Well, we're not. Yeah. But we can still have uh, beneficial results from their blessings, from their influence but this kind of ability to just completely come in and remove an individual's karma. And I know other traditions say different things, um, but to the best of my understanding, we don't have that kind of power. And, and if, again, to me, the one of the principal arguments is if that power was there, don't you think that the Buddhas would have done that for all of us, right? Like so, the theoretical creator God, you know? Again, yeah, exactly, exactly. The argument so,
2: we have against that.
0: Exactly. So we have our own mind streams, but that doesn't mean we can't, you know, this is it's the issue of causes and conditions. So w- we can create certain conditions, contributory factors through, through um, auspicious coincidence and blessings and the like that can influence. But in terms of like coming in and scrubbing out another person's karma. Um, it just, it, it doesn't make sense to me. And um, it, it doesn't seem to work that way for the, for the reasons that I just mentioned, but that doesn't mean we're completely ineffectual. We can, in fact, benefit others within certain parameters. The more awake you are, the more power you have. Um, you can direct people, especially in in situations because the environment is a little bit more fluid. But to actually step into another person's mind stream and can purify their karma um, in the tradition as I've come to understand it doesn't quite seem to work that way. But-
2: Thank you, I and mean, it seems that uh, it, many, many Buddhists go to the hell realms to try and uh, help the hell realm beings change the, you know, the cults of, or this is my understanding, but, and, and I can see it, but it seems like the, the pain and the suffering is so intense that you forget instantly, like you, oh, you might grasp it slippery concept for a moment of escape, but then it's gone because you're back into, you know, being branded and re-rising again and all the horrible, anxious okay. things that happen. Because right. uh, that just seemed like the log book though, it, it was, it is sort of a dreamlike quality, the whole experience, it just, it-
0: It's well, it's, again, it's both. And so yes, there is a fundamental dream like empty quality to whatever rises, but certain domains, especially s- specifically hell realms, one of the characteristics of a hell realm is, is its solidity. That's what creates the hellish quality. Hell realms by definition are extremely reified solid states of mind. And so therefore that's why they're among the most impenetrable because the fear is so high. The contraction is so high. The solidity is so dense. That's what creates hell even now, right? That's what creates hell. And that's why that kind of frequency of mind is among the most hardest to, to penetrate just because of the level of solidity. So, um, you know, the day tradition is an interesting one. Um, but I've, I've talked to a number of teachers about that the dialogue thing. And just parenthetically, they, they all take it with a little bit of a grain of salt that they don't dismiss it, but they don't put a ton of credibility on the whole thing. Um, that's why you don't hear about it all that much. The book that I might recommend in addition to the one you're reading is Tukutunda, um, Peaceful Death, Joyful Rebirth. He he writes about this quite a bit in that book, if you haven't come across that. I,
2: I have the book on your recommendation, but just haven't opened it. It's in my yes. stack of 100 that you've recommended in the right. last... Okay,
0: yeah, it's interesting thank stuff. It's interesting <laughs> stuff. But every time I've talked to masters about this, I wouldn't say they give it a hand wave, but but they say, you know, take take the dialogue tradition a little bit lightly. Uh, again, not to dismiss it, but yeah. just put it in more of this kind of cultural context.
2: Okay, thank okay. you. Okay, thank you very much.
0: You're welcome. So here's one from Steve. How are we doing time-wise here? Okay, a few more. Oh, somewhat interesting connection. I love the way these these questions are somewhat connected. From Steve, my experience is that the dream is both illusory and real. Yes, isn't it? Depending on the way you look at it. There is a suchness about my strongest dreams that when observed with clarity can definitely impart wisdom. Cool, very good. When lucid, it is as if I'm experiencing that suchness even as I am seeing through the illusion and gaining clarity and understanding from both. Bravo, my friend, that's awesome, man. I have, of course co-opted the term suchness for my student studies, but I'm not sure if I have it right. It feels like an important concept. Can you help me? Yeah. It is. It's a super important concept. <laughs> the term in, in Sanskrit is tatata, I love it. Tatata it's like baby talk. Ta ta ta, which is you know suchness isness ta ta ta, connected to other terms like dharma ta, dharma datu. Fundamentally refers to the ultimate nature of reality. Um, it has a slightly more positive connotation than emptiness or shunyata, and so in in a, it gets a little technical here, my friend, but. Um, Tatata refers more specifically to the actual union of luminosity and emptiness, hence the title of Francesca Fremantle's dazzling book, Luminous Emptiness. So her book is actually about this. and the luminous bardo of dharmata in that languaging is the luminous bardo of suchness, isness. Um, and so it's fundamentally you know, the eternal nature of reality um, that is ever just so, um, ever thus. It is that domain that is free of conceptual proliferation, prapancha, it's, it's like the whole shebang. So when we talk about suchness, it's another way to talk about the enlightened state. Um, things are just that, 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 thatness. And so sometimes even in the Hindu tradition, when Nisargadatta Maharaj says, you know, or, or the, the tradition itself says, tat tvam asi, thou art that, that's what that tradition is referring to, that you are that fundamental reality. And so um, ways to explore this, Steve, um, you know, if you have a connection to it, and it seems like you too, this, these are apex level teachings. So Mahamudra, Dzogchen, teachings on the part of Dhammata, anything that deals with Buddha nature, is dealing with this uh, term suchness. So, uh, because this is, you know, another one of these colossally beautiful, enormous terms, maybe I'll let that go for now, unless you have a little follow-up on that, but uh, I would bark up those trees. Um, Dharma Dharma Ta (laughs) Tatata, I love that term. Um, Mahamudra Dzogchen, this is the kind of the apex stuff. Okay, cool, all right. Uh, okay, here we go. So from Eris, hi Andrew, are really enjoying Winnie and mindfulness. So this is Joe's and Nancy's wonderful book, Winnie the Pooh. Uh, Joe and Nancy are doing a great job. I think so too, I'm loving it. I love how Winnie says, I am kind to myself first. Yes, that's uh, Maitri, Metta. Do you practice Metta Bhavana for yourself? Absolutely. Um, others and people you dislike? Oh, absolutely, positively, yes. So, okay, let me finish the question, I guess. I have looked through the meditation. Is it possible to do a meditation, a metta meditation on Monday? Yes, absolutely possible. So this refers to a Monday meditation thing that we started a couple months ago. Um, Eris, we just haven't got yet to, to, to the metta practice to the four Brahma Viharas. Which are usually the liturgy that's associated with it. We just haven't gotten to that beautiful practice yet. This is a really powerful, big deal event. Um, loving kindness, my tree, is so amazing to practice and share together. I totally agree. So stay tuned. We will get to it. We're just not there yet. My um, last question is can you say more about deity yoga? <laughs> Again, another one of these. Yeah, do you have a week? Um, Just joking, like having Tara, for example, as one. Okay, so yes, deity yoga, also called Yidam practice, also called generation stage meditation, is a really big deal practice, both in in, uh, Hinduism and Buddhism. It's colossal in tantric Buddhism, arguably one third of Vajrayana tantric Buddhism is devoted to deity yoga. There's a, a lot to say here. But you know, in the briefest possible way, Eris, what, what deity yoga is about is, it's a form of elevationism. In fact, uh, Lama Yeshi has the beautiful word for it. He calls it evolutionary yoga. I, I never heard that translation anywhere else. And so when I read it, I said, spot on, evolutionary yoga. And so what this practice is, it's about visualizing yourself, deity yoga, and even deity yoga itself comes in several levels. There's the more, Kind of Mahayana deity yoga. This is where Tara comes in. Tara is probably the most popular Mahayana deity yoga. And then there's the little bit more charged Vajrayana or tantric deity yoga that transcends but includes the Mahayana component. And so in the briefest possible way, and again, I can give you some resources here. Deity yoga is about visualizing yourself using the powers of imagination to um, invoke The archetypal nature of who you really are. You are the deity. You are Tara. You just forgot. Tara represents a certain bandwidth, a certain archetype, archetypal expression of who you really are. And so when you engage in deity yoga, it's a fake until you make a practice. You visualize yourself as the deity. You recite the deity's uh, mantra, the sound of the deity's mind, like in Tara, you know, the mantra that we talked about earlier, You recite that um, as a way to create this kind of resonance, this like um, tuning fork that then serves to invoke this energetic within and without that lifts you up into a a more accurate um, frequency domain of who you really are. And so therefore that's why there's so many different deities. All the deities in essence are the same. They're all like with Steve's question. I love the way these come together. The essence of all the deities is suchness, isness, dharmata. That's the essence of all of them. So that's why the tradition says if you accomplish one deity, you've accomplished them all. But on a more relative level, each deity in their yoga, each yidam, yidam is binding deity. So they're binding you to your true nature. Each deity represents a quality of the awakened mind. So we mentioned um, Chenrazi, Avalokiteshvara, that's the deity of compassion. You are. Chanrazi. When you express unconditional compassion, you have become Chenrazi. When you express unconditional all-accomplishing action, you become a city. When you accomplish or work with um wisdom, you know, depending on your preferences, you can become Manjushri or Prajnaparamita. So there are dozens and dozens of these deities. There are some very classic archetypal ones like Tara, for example, but there are many, many others. And if you have a connection to this, these are, this is extremely sophisticated spiritual technology. If we're careful using that word that is designed to really rocket fuel your evolutionary path. That's why it's called evolutionary yoga. So it's a little bit like a kid, you know, when the kid is, is acting childish, you actually invite the kid, to act to grow up, to act more like an adult, to act more like whatever. And that's, that's a way to, to help you know, bring the child along on a, on a relative evolutionary trajectory. So the deities of, apply in that regard. Um, I might recommend, there's a vast literature on this, Reggie Ray's book, Secrets of the Vajra World. He has a wonderful rich section on deity yoga Um, Creation and Completion, it's a book translated by Sarah Harding, is really good. There's a lot out there these days on this. Lama Yeshe's books um, riff on this. Um, So it's a beautiful, rich topic, Eris. And again, it's one of the great challenges. These questions are so big. Um, Maybe that's enough for now, okay? (laughs) It's a bit of a challenge. Really, these questions, they're so rich. There's so much to say. Um, I hate to just speed through them. Um, but I think you understand for purposes of time. Okay, so from Marta, uh, thanks for your work. I have a few questions. In your book, you recommend that people who don't have a sense of reality, stable mental health, shouldn't induce lucid dreaming. Yes, that's. I'm gonna. This is a longer question, so I'll take it apart, so to speak, as I go through it. That's a general recommendation. Um, and I'm not the only one that talks about this. Stephen LeBerge, others, people who are really legitimate, I think teachers are always a little bit of, of interested, concerned um, about people who may have um, any kind of depersonalization, dissociative uh, tendencies, because you know the practice itself um, is, is a, a transition of identity, identity, identification. And that kind of dislodging of identity Um, sometimes can be destabilizing for people who don't have an an established platform. I mean, Mark Epstein, no, I'm sorry, Jack Engler, the Buddhist psychiatrist famously put it with the jingle, you have to be somebody before you can be nobody. And this means that without a solid platform, um, instead of uh, differentiation from identity, you get dissociation and so yes, Um, Lucid dreaming is not for everybody. Uh, It tends to self-select. People do it who have a a kind of predilection predisposition and they're usually ready for it. But every once in a while, and and we do a little surveys when I do my deeper dives, if people are um, having any questions, they should consult with their mental health care provider. I've never come across a problem in my programs because um, again, people tend to self-select but you can, you can run into some issues. Anything that has this kind of power to transform, my friend Ryan Hurd writes about this really elegantly. You know, it's, a, it's not a panacea. Anything that has this kind of transformative power, if it's not used properly judiciously, it can backfire on you. These skillful means are not for everybody. So yes, you have to be just a teeny bit careful. So back to you, uh, but some advanced Buddhists affirm that they have arrived at a point that they don't distinguish between daytime, daydream and nightdream. That's true, but those advanced Buddhists are those who are able to transcend and include and not transcend and exclude. And and so in other words, they have enough of a stable identity structure, or you could almost say at this level, the capacity to destructure where they don't have an issue with these kinds of transitions and realizing the dreamlike, fundamental dreamlike nature. You know, again, if you're not careful, what did RD Lang, another very sensitive um, mystic psychiatrist famously said, the mystic swims in the same ocean where the psychotic drowns. And I have a little bit of personal experience with this. You know I mean? My sister is an institutionalized schizophrenic. And we, when I grew up with her, I was probably closer in disposition to her than anybody else. I mean, my sister and I were super close. And I think when I had some of the issues that I was sharing with Zach's question in my, tw- in my 20s, I actually was able to find, locate, have a, a community, whatever that in a certain way really did save me. My sister didn't. And my sister lost it and maybe I found it. I, I have to be very careful saying these sorts of things, but we're talking about really um, uh, powerful, transformative means here. And, and we have to be a little bit careful um, especially when you enter things like tantra Vajrayana, which dream yoga, by the way, is a subset. And so therefore we have to be a little bit go into this with a little bit of open eyes. So the people who do this, as you say, they're, they they do not distinguish between day and dream. That's because they're stable enough. They don't have an issue with it. Here's another case in point. Another example, there's actually a syndrome now with virtual reality. And I've experienced this a little bit. It's called alternative world syndrome. I experienced it um, when I spent hours in VR. When you take the VR set off, it's, it's, it's really unsettling. You know I just spent two hours in this alternate reality, and I take the headset off and, and it's like I'm scrambled for a while. Um, and you know um, I came out more or less okay. but there is this thing now, a diagnosis, alternative to world syndrome, where people can get lost in these alternate realities if they don't have a fundamental self- relative self sense. And so therefore this is super important. Fundamentally, there's nothing wrong with ego. Ego is just a particular form of development. What happens with ego. And again, this is connected to the fear issue that's ego and fear are connected and they have a very viable place on the path. But what happens is ego becomes, um, an arrested form of development. So you have to have an ego You have to be somebody before you can be nobody. You have to have an ego before you become ego less. Otherwise you become psychotic. You don't attain enlightenment, you attain insanity. So you have to be a little careful here. Uh, Yeah, so there's a lot here. I'm gonna skip some of it just for the purposes of time, if that's okay with you. I've decided to do a doctorate about dreaming. Good for you, but I'm still not clear, but still, uh, but I haven't still clear the subject. Any counsel? Yes. Talk to my friend, Claire Johnson, um, reach out to her, um, tell her you're a friend of mine, especially if you live in Europe, that's cool because she teaches in Portugal. here in Barcelona, reach out to Claire and get some counsel from her because she has, um, a a PhD in lucid dreaming. So, um, Kristen Lamarca is another one you can talk to people who have actually done this sort of thing. So to get counsel from someone who's actually done it, those are people that I would turn to and they're friends and I'm sure they would be happy to talk to you. Um, what else is here? I tried a technique you described in your book and had a lucid dream where I decided to meditate and experiment with a kind of transition to death. Cool. I woke up feeling so weak and tired in a few hours I just recovered. How could you explain that? Oh, Marta, this is tricky. I'd have to bring you on and ask you a bunch of questions. Um, It's really hard for me to just centrifuge out from what you're saying, what that was really all about. So I'm going to let that one go because I, I don't want to just shoot from the hip without having more information from you on that one. But maybe the other parts of what you were asking are of some benefit. Okay. All right, I got a few more minutes here. These questions are just so good. Okay, so here we go. I've just read Mark Epstein's book on desire. Mark is great. He's another one of these um, psychiatrists, psychologists, Buddhist practitioners. There's a bunch of them out there now. And Mark is one of the really great ones. Thoughts without a thinker. um, I mean, he's written a number. I've read a number of his, his stuff. I like him a lot. He talks about desire as a way to become enlightened. If you stay in the gap between desire and grasping, have you any experience with this? Yeah. Um, for sure, and, and and the way to really look with this, Judith, is what I would really explore here, the 12 links of dependent origination, the 12 uh, Madonnas, because what you're talking about fundamentally is the incredibly important transition between the seventh Madonna and the eighth Madonna. And so um, I don't know if Mart goes into that in this book, but that's exactly what it is, is that if you can, again, relate to your mind instead of from it, when, um, you know, you can use the, the actual, this gap, this bardo, this space, which is exactly a space between the seventh and eighth links. This is what the classic place to stop the chain, to, top, to stop the chain of causation. So you feel the impetus. This is ties into the, the earlier question. All these questions tie in beautifully today about the bardo of existence. So this is exactly what the bardo becoming teachings are all about is that Um, you have this particular desire that if we don't relate to it properly, then transforms into grasping, craving, becoming, and and the rest of the links. And that gives birth to samsara. But what we want to do is transform this kind of passion or desire, um, resting in that space, asking ourselves when we feel it, um, it's like impulse control, like desire is a type of impulse Impulse control is birth control. And so uh, we can work with this in exactly the way I suspect Mark is talking about that you'll feel the desire. And then there's a space, that's the, the gap between seventh and eighth and data where you don't have to go there. Or if you are gonna go there, you'll pause for a second in that gap and you ask yourself, what's my motivation? Why do I really need to say this? Do I really need to do that? Am I really doing this for the benefit of myself or am I doing it for the benefit of others? So um, I have experience with this, it's, it's, it's actually Bardo practice. So that gap is Bardo. And so that Bardo between desire and grasping is a type of Bardo yoga. This is exactly a micro instance of the entire Bardo of becoming. It deals precisely with this gap. So that's a great kind of question in terms of how the Bardo teachings apply, not just at the end of life, but right now between this type of um, experience. So thank you for for, um, sharing that, Judith, that's cool. Okay, a couple more and then if there's a live one, we'll take it or two and then maybe it's slowly time to wrap it up. These questions are so great. Okay, so here's uh, (laughs) from Joanna, what are your thoughts about Socrates' uh, allegory of the cave and dream yoga? I'm finding great similarities here. For sure. yeah, it's more Plato actually, Plato's allegory of the cave. Socrates really didn't riff on anything. I mean Plato Socrates, you can think of them, is as, as almost inextricable, but this is Plato's allegory of the cave from the Republic. Um, it's one of the classic um, images in all of Buddhist philo- in all of Western philosophy. In fact, you know, I think it was Alfred North Whitehead um, once said, all the Western philosophy is just a set of footnotes to Plato. Plato was a colossal influence in Western philosophy. Plato slash Socrates, again, they're, they're virtually synonymous. But this is Plato's allegory of the cave. And so the idea is, it has tremendous similarities to what we're doing where um, the image is the following. These prisoners are chained in a cave, um, and there's a fire behind them. <clears throat> there's a light behind them. They can't turn around and see it. And all these, th- these shadows are projected out um, to the wall of the cave. And the prisoners think that that constitutes reality. And so what, what Plato's um, slash Socrates then um, talks about is how the philosopher is the one who can liberate himself herself from the chains uh, of uh, taking the shadows to be real and then you know, returning to the actual source, to the light, that sort of thing. So so yes, Johanna, for sure, there are tremendous similarities here that we live fundamentally, just like the, the prisoners in the allegory of the cave, we live lost in the shadows. And, and this has double entendre, this is multiple levels of meaning. <clears throat> One <clears throat> is mistaking the shadows to be real, <clears throat> but on a more psychological level, then of course you can see all the literal kind of shadow work elements taking place in the Jungian sense. So. The shadows here, again, it has kind of multi-level, multi-layered levels of depth that I don't think even Plato was aware of because he wasn't really working with projection at this level. But that's the fundamental idea. This is, it has tremendous connection to to lucid dreaming, dream yoga. They were always projecting, always getting lost in the shadows, always getting lost in externality. Um, and so uh, as I can say, is, is spot on. There are tremendous similarities to Plato's Allegory of the Cave and what we're doing with this inner work for sure. Okay, so uh, there's one last one here, I think, unless there's another live one and then we'll let it go for today. We try to limit it to an hour and a half and we're close. So there's one from John, but John said he's probably not gonna be here. So I'll, let, I ask that, I'll come back to that next week when he probably is online, but here's one from Ina. Dear Andrew, could you explain a little more about who exactly are all other people in this shared dream of life? (laughs) Oh yeah. Okay. So, okay. Let me just finish through this and then we'll see what we can go. Are they separate souls or are they my own dream characters? Oh, big questions again. In case of child abuse, are the parents separate souls who have their own karma or are they two or are they aspects of the child's higher self? That the child dreams to give herself a life lesson. Um, I wouldn't say that. No. Of um, say compassion and forgiveness. No, I, it doesn't seem to work that way. Um, let me let me read the rest of it. And I'll try to tease it apart. <clears throat> also, am I dreaming you right now? Um, and am I the only one who exists and creates all this life characters? Do you exist in my dream as a dreamer himself? <laughs> oh, again, I chuckle because oh my God, these are colossally beautiful big questions. So okay. Let's start from the top. Can you explain a little more about who exactly are all the other people in the shared dream? I wish I knew they're all expressions of this mind, but it's not even one mind. It's not your mind. So this ties into your last question. Are you dreaming me right now? No, you're not. Um, That's solipsism. Um, That's the error of thinking solipsism is ultimate selfism that somehow you think you're dreaming me. The world is not solipsistic. You're dreaming me only in the sense that you're projecting onto me your aspects, certain unconscious um, elements, some shadow elements. In that sense, you're dreaming your version of me, but you are not dreaming me up into existence. Um, That's solipsism and that's not what this is about. Uh, Who exactly are all these other people? Well, you know, there's relative and absolute ways to address this question On, on an absolute level. Everything that arises is just the shine, the radiance, the expression of mind. But it's not one mind. It's not my mind. It's neither the same as my mind nor different from my mind. So they're all, you know, ex- expressions of this fundamental radiance. It's called idealistic monism in, in Western philosophy. They're all expressions of this one radiance. In in again more relativistic ways or terms, each one has its individual mind stream. Again, the term in 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 the Buddhism, it's called chitta santana. Santana is mind stream, um, individual mind streams that are like tributaries of this this kind of collective uh, mind. So, um, who exactly are all these people? <laughs> they're people. They're, they're they're iterations of you know. Again, these it's, I struggle with this stuff because these are not easy questions to answer in a bullet form, form fashion. They're all iterations of particular karmic mind streams created by karmic propensities, habits. We share this commonality because of karmic um, similarities and propensities. And who they are, um, you know, ultimately is something that really constitutes um, large aspects of what the spiritual path is all about. Discovering, like, what is the relationship of me to all these other beings? What is the relationship of all of us to reality itself? Are they separate souls? Well. Again, you have to be very careful by even use the word soul um, in Buddhism. That's a four letter word. There is no soul in Buddhism. There's no it dep- again, depending on how you define that term. There's no fundamental reified independent anything. There are individual continuums. Um, yes, but that's not a soul. This is a word you will never find in Buddhism. There is no Atman uh, in the Buddhist tradition. So they're not separate souls in that regard, but they're separate streams, separate propensities, separate momentums. The tricky thing here is we, we start to enter a domain when we work with levels of absolute truth where language itself just completely falls apart. Um, in fact, when I was talking yesterday with Ian Baker, we had a little conversation about the tremendous limitations of language this is a colossal topic in Western philosophy and linguistics, language is a monumental factor in the way we perceive reality and even think. And so, you know, when you start talking about this sort of stuff, you, you shift into metaphorical language, you shift. When you start talking about suchness, reality, language can't even approximate it. And so right off the bat, you know, even the, the words we use, the language we use is actually very important because it's it already sets the mind in a particular direction. So when you use the word soul, and again, this is not a criticism, it simply already implies a host of things that are based on certain assumptions and, and axioms that fundamentally according to the Buddhist tradition are not true. So even the languaging here becomes really um, delicate. And that's what makes this stuff so interesting to talk about. You know, These subtle, subtle questions, comments like this, you have to really tease this stuff apart. Are these separate souls, or are, they my own, are, are they my own dream characters? No, they are not your dream characters. Again, that's solid system. That's an easy one. They are definitely not your dream. In case of child abuse, yeah. Uh, are the parents separate souls who have their own karma? They definitely have their own karma. Or are they aspects of the higher child's higher self? I wouldn't say that, no. So that to me is a no. That um, the child dreams to give herself a lesson. No, it doesn't seem to work that way. It doesn't have that kind of specificity, this kind of pedagogical specificity. There are certain lessons that can be derived from life experiences, but I think we have to be a little careful to think that, oh, I'm going to choose these parents because they will give me a chance to work this out. I, it doesn't seem to work that way. Um, at least based on my understanding. So, um, these are wonderful, beautiful questions. Um, pardon me for stumbling and tripping over some of them just because there's so much to say in a relatively limited period of time. And so I'm I'm always wrestling with, do I just speed across these or do I try to give you a little bit of information that can be of some benefit? So unless there's a live question on board, we're reaching the hour and a half mark. Yeah,
1: Rana has a live question if you want to- Okay. A few days ago, a very dear friend of mine died And I see the desire of dying in me actually, because the more I miss that person, the more I wish I would go there. Mm -hmm. But And then I thought maybe that is really all about. So we get ready by losing a dear one, we get ready to give up all attachment in this life and get ready to go.
0: Well, that's would be the beautiful way to use that experience in a really beneficial way that it's another um, painful reminder of the truth of impermanence, which, again, is an expression of emptiness and so um, beautiful for you to even have that level of recognition and to actually you know, kind of use that experience in that way as as a harsh reminder of the noble truths of impermanence. What that's why the truths in Buddhism are called noble because they're they're rugged, they're true, they're not easy to digest. And so, I I completely that's the way I relate to these sorts of things. That, you know, until we are slapped in the face by the truth of emptiness, which expresses itself as impermanence, we live in this illusion of immortality. Um, and so. I do exactly what you seem to be doing is whenever something is lost, taken away, I allow myself a little bit like Katie was say, saying to stay on those fires completely, feel the loss, feel the pain, feel the grief, and then use that as a, a you know, in Obama's beautiful languaging as a teachable moment, that this is another painful reminder that I I am, I too, am subject to this. And so um, it's like they say in their traditions, you know, if, if we don't contemplate impermanence and death in the morning, the morning is wasted. If we don't contemplate impermanence and death in the afternoon, the afternoon is wasted. So we want to remove the waste. And so what we do, this is what I do is whenever these painful reminders come into play, I use them to jog me and back on track and say like, what really matters if I was to die today what, what, what should I be doing? What, how should I live my life? And so I, I, all I can say is, is, is uh, I support that, use these expressions of um, the harsh noble truths of impermanence and death as reminders that this is where we're all going. And therefore it can bring us onto the path where we can actually die before we die. And so if we do that and you know, jumping all the way to the end We can use these things to actually propel us deeply into the path until we come to the most extraordinary conclusion that death is an illusion, that death only exists in the world of form. And so on one level, your friend is gone physically. This ties into the question earlier about, you know, the geography of the spectrum of identity. But there is a dimension of this person who who is not dead, um, and you will never lose that connection. You know, death is the end of a body, it's not the end of a relationship. Thich Nhat Hanh writes really beautifully about this, read his teachings on interbeing. that this person that you love, they're still on a very real level, in fact, a a more real level because they're no longer limited to the body. They're they're still there. Um, They will always be with you in that regard. And so, you know, use these painful lessons as painful reminders of the fragility of our own life, how we should breathe every breath as if it was our last And as Don Juan said, uh, you know, the teachings of Castaneda, use death as your advisor, use death as your advisor to reframe your life to what's really important so that when you reach the end of the life, at the end of your life, you will look at um, your life with tremendous appreciation and even celebration. And when brought to full fruition, you realize that death is a joke, it's just an illusion. Death only applies to the world of form. So your friend's body is gone But their heart essence is indestructible that never dies. And so you want to, you know, use that as a way to access that domain of your own experience now. Um, And therefore your friend will have left you with a really beautiful gift. Okay, okay, maybe one last one from Zach. Oh, my 25 year old dude. (laughs) So do I, can I assume that you're 25?
1: You can assume that yes.
0: Yeah. How can I help you amigo?
1: Well, I don't have a question. I just want to say thank you, Andrew, and thank you everybody else for being so open and and so eloquent and you've been such a help for me. I've studied a
0: bunch of your stuff for a while and I'm going to keep studying it. And I hope to meet you someday. That'd be really cool too, Uh, but love to all of you too. Love to everybody here. Thanks, Zach. I really appreciate that, everybody. So thank you, my friend. So this is, we do this totally geeky thing, right? So we turn our cameras all back on we unmute, we all unmute ourselves. Will be, we say bye to everybody. Bye. 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 bye, thank you. Bye.
1: Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you, thank you. Bye. bye. Yeah, thank bye. you. Bye. bye. Bye, Andrew. Bye. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's so funny. Oh. <laughs> we have to. We have to. <laughs> we have to do something for her. Her mom. But anyway, we can't do it now. we forgot.